0: Being a politician means being for things because of value fights, even if it's not realistic, because you lose re-election if you're realistic, because people like me, if you run, I say, well, we're going to maximize utility given the budget constraint. And and, wow, that really whips the
1: voters up, doesn't it? I'm Trevor Burrus. And I'm Aaron Ross Powell. This is Freedom, a show about ideas that matter. Freedom is an independent, listener-supported show. If you value these conversations, please consider becoming a supporter. You'll get access to episode transcripts, bonus content, and our Discord community. Learn more at freedom.audio slash join, or look for the link in the show notes. On today's show, we bring back our favorite guest from Free Thoughts,
2: our friend, Peter Van Doran. Peter came on Free Thoughts over 20 times and we gave him his own theme music, as we've done again. Peter is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and editor of Regulation Magazine. Today we're going to take a step back and try to learn how Peter thinks about the world and how he came to those views. Well, Peter Van Doran our most popular guest on the Free Thoughts podcast, and we've brought you back. This time we want to do something a little bit different. We want to talk about how you think about things. And in the discussion beforehand, you were like, I don't really know how to talk about that, but you do. Uh, And so we'll get into that. So I want to start with the question you just brought it up before we started recording. Uh, Your background in terms of your academic and what you're specialized in and how you're interdisciplinary background has helped you think about questions in different ways?
0: Believe it or not, it starts as an undergraduate uh, when I couldn't decide what to major in. And I liked, I went to MIT and I grew up on a farm in Northern New York State, never been south of Syracuse in my life. And My parents couldn't, didn't have time to take, anyway, they stuck me on a plane in Syracuse and I flew to Boston in September 1973. And uh, so I just started taking classes and uh, by, you had, you know, all schools, you have to decide what to major in and and at the end of your sophomore year. And I said, geez, I like, I like biology and I like chemistry. I mean, I, I thought I wanted to be a biochemist. And I majored in chemistry because it only had eight course or eight classes required. And so second semester, uh, junior year, MIT also, the labs were separate from courses, right? So I, the organic chemistry and inorganic chemistry didn't have labs with them. The labs were separate. So uh, junior year, Second semester organic lab was half my course load. It was 5 hours a day, 5 days a week. It was we were learning to be chemists. And oh boy, did I I said, "Wow, I love learning about chemistry, but doing it seems kind of boring." So I was so fall semester senior year, I went into my advisor to have him sign my course cards, and I had all economics and political science classes and no chemistry because I had one chemistry requirement left, which was I would do spring semester, senior year, he wouldn't sign my card. He said, we deliberately don't have, we only have eight courses in the major because we want you to work in a lab and then you're going to go to graduate school in chemistry. And I said, oh man, I don't know if I, I I need to figure out what I'm going to do here. So I'd taken some political science and economics classes and and no one does that at MIT and really likes them. They're thought they're thought of as kind of being in the penalty box. And I actually got to know people in the department at political science and economics. And so I went to the the undergraduate head of advisors there and said, I told him my problem. I said, I need my course card signed. <laughs> So believe it or not, they cooked me up a do-it-yourself major in one year. So I did not get graduate as with a chemistry degree, even though all my classes were chemistry, and I did never take inorganic. And that continues in graduate. I mean, basically that's this which is I, I like science, I like engineering, I learned a lot in economics and political science. And in the policy world, that's pretty unique. I think we need more engineers and scientists that that come into policy um and sadly well I guess but we could make you got I we need fewer lawyers I mean in, in policy and there is hey. so <laughs> <laughs> well
2: Aaron probably agrees uh, since he's he's sort of pseudo technically a lawyer but never did it but um sorry continue so
0: I think that and then, and, and I'm now, you know, almost seventy years old, and yet I'm still trying to figure out what I want to know. It, it just I just find lots of subjects interesting, and I think in the policy world, um, you, you need, I think, a technical background as well as a social science background is very useful. And the technical background, sadly, is is often quite lacking among many of the what we call the chattering classes that we now are, right, that people talk about policy as if um, they knew what was going on about, well, for example, electric vehicles, right, or, or electrification of the society. I read um, things, you know, in the last few years, and I go, what? That's just... So there's a, there is a guy out there, you may have heard of him, Vaclav Smil, right, writes books, and he's I think he's a physicist by training, and he reminds me, I mean, I'm not up to his level, but he writes books about policy in which he says, some of what government wants to do violates the laws of physics and thermodynamics and other things, and thus, we're not going to do that, although I don't know what we are going to do. We're going to end up um, in some other space. I wrote a blog post recently summarizing all this, and I call it Policy Beyond Capability, and it goes back to some of the things, that environmental policy in the 70s, which we said, we're going to have clean water by 1985. We're going to have clean air by 1975. We're going to ban the internal combustion engine in California by 1975. Right? I write, Those are all real things that policymakers said could happen. And I have a quote from one of my mentors, Alan Altshuler, who's uh, at At the Kennedy School now he was at MIT when I was an undergrad, and he's he said um, in, environmental activists act as act as if the legislature stating something means it's really going to happen he even if it can't or won't, but that's the point and, and again that um sometimes my Cato colleagues get frustrated with this." view I have, which is lots of being a politician means being for things because of value fights, even if it's not realistic, because you lose reelection if you're realistic. Because people like me, if you run, I say, well, we're going to maximize utility given the budget constraint. And, and wow, that really whips the voters up, doesn't it? it, 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 it so Um, Anyway, I'm a policy analyst with a mixed interdisciplinary background, and I think that's important. And I think that's, um, and my first, um, also, I I mean, the fact that I, I was intellectually young and aware during the 70s when the environment and energy were where it was at, and so my formative intellectual experiences were about Policy areas where everyone wished and wanted the moon even though it wasn't going to happen and thus made me mark or I'm not sure market oriented that came later but it it made me realize that being active or being an activist and and just voting for the right people was a maybe necessary but not sufficient condition to get the world to change and so that that informs me even to this day.
1: you said something interesting when you were talking about the value of interdisciplinary uh, just knowledge and training that I wanted to kind of tease out a bit, um, because I too like I really value interdisciplinary abilities and conversations. You know, part of part of my job is arranging conversations among academics. And I love to have those be interdisciplinary because it's surprising how much like one discipline things that they think are just obvious that another discipline has never even heard of. And, Correct. and having those those cross-disciplinary conversations. But you said you said in when you're doing policy, it's important to have a social science background, but it's also important to have the technical training. And and so what I wanted to tease out was there's a couple of ways we might think about interdisciplinary training. One is what it means to be interdisciplinary is to essentially have a wide like body of knowledge. You know about a lot of things. So if it's if you're a policy person and you're, your training is in economics, but it can be really helpful to have a strong grasp of history as well, to, to have a sense of like, oh, this thing was tried or a version of it or this is what happened um, or or what's happening now looks awfully familiar to what happened back then and so on uh so it's a it's kind of interdisciplinary as just having a lot of buckets of knowledge but the other way that we could think about it is methodologically that the way one conducts does research in sociology looks different than the way one does research in economics looks different than the way one does research at, in philosophy and so it's kind of separate from the content itself it's more like i have different a different toolkit for applying to a given question. Does one of those stand out more for you? Or does one of those like, is emphasized in the story that you're telling?
0: You've made me realize, I mean, when I tell my own story, I suppose I would emphasize the buckets of knowledge view. However, you've made me realize that also in my reading, I pick up exactly what you said, which is when I read sociology, for example, I go, what, what are they, what, what are they doing? Or then when people read, read, when I have others read economics articles, it's like, I don't know what they're up to, right? This silos of knowledge that are completely separate, the language, the verbiage, the starting assumptions. Um, I'll give you, I mean, my research is, uh, 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 my research helper at Cato, David Kemp now, and I are writing, we're trying to figure out, well, the working, this tentative title is what can OPEC do? What does OPEC do? And what should we do about OPEC? And we have had to, despite many people that I shall not name have been whispering in my ear, you don't need to figure this out. I have th- thought we need to figure out the chemical engineering and geology of oil production. That is, it's, it's, uh, and I'll give you there's a rule in economics, it's called the Hotelling Rule, and it is a, it's allegedly an explanation of how, it's the path of prices of non-renewable resources over time. And it says, this rule, this theory says, a non-renewable resource, they think of it as, you know, a, 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 a container like an aquarium, and you're figuring out how much to dig or how much to suck out at what rate, you will adjust that amount as interest rates vary because the that's what interest rates and in economics tell you to do. They tell you to speed up or slow down because interest rates change the present value of the amount you're going to get given the rate at which you are producing from this aquarium. And then we've dug into what chemical engineers and geologists say about oil production, and they don't say anything about that. They go, the rock underground is not like an aquarium. You don't just stick a straw in there and stuff happens. And once you stick a straw in there, you've got to be very careful about what you do because you can change the cumulative output of this reservoir. So this OPEC notion of varying output up and varying it down to kind of do stuff, which is the way people understand OPEC in the press the more we dug into the geology what geologists think and we we actually talked to a Cato donor who was an oil geologist and then we read a lot in oil geology and read papers from Texas A&M until we realized it wasn't just a cow college it was an oil college and anyway it's just like oh okay this the chattering classes' perception of opec turning a spigot on and off the underlying technical basis for of oil production wasn't like that. And I've been studying oil markets for f- my dissertation, you know, 40 years now. And even I didn't, I saw, I mean, I didn't know enough about the technical constraints. And so the, I guess this is a long-winded answer to Aaron's question about which, so knowing buckets of knowledge, but also knowing the methodology of what oil geologists do and don't do and how they figure things out uh, was has been important to our and we're still figuring out how to write this paper right to kind of get it right Um, well one thing we realized though is the hoteling notion in economics all economics articles about oil production say they start with hoteling and we're going until recently there's actually been some new stuff and the interesting thing about the new stuff, a guy tenured at the Harris School at Chicago is he had an undergraduate, before his economics PhD, and an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering. He's the only oil economist I know who has that, and he worked for British Petroleum. So he, he literally brought what he learned and then said, wow, economics isn't getting oil right. And the reason was because they were focused on the hoteling theory as opposed to anything that geology or chemical engineering had to
2: say about oil. To Aaron's question, to, to continue off of that, in terms of the methodological things, and you mentioned in your first answer that you you looked at your transcript and you had tons of economics and poli-sci classes in there. Was there something about the methodology of economics and poli-sci that attracted you? I mean, the one that I'm thinking of is something like methodological individualism, where where, I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I read historian papers or sociology papers, and they're not, they don't have a methodology to approach the question of why things happen. So is there something kind of philosophically I, down there?
0: Sad. I mean, what's interesting is a lot of my intellectual, well, learning more about methodological individualism and then its association with liberty actually came after I came to Cato. It is not. It was not. I mean, the,
2: but you were, Um, you were probably thinking that way. Maybe you didn't have a name for it, but you. I
0: didn't have a name. I mean, like Cato has name, right? Like we're a little intellectual enclave. And so we, the, um, remember I, I didn't, I would never pass the test to be a Cato intern, even now, because I wouldn't say or do the right things. I wouldn't, talk about Ayn Rand. I wouldn't use the word methodological individualism. I wouldn't use liberty. Cause, but in Liberty Land, you learn those code words early on, and you realize they are crucial to your future, and you need to utter them. Otherwise, you don't get hired. And I didn't know that. I mean, we've talked, uh, me being at Cato is a big f effing accident, because um, I wasn't interviewed <laughs> if I had been. I might have failed
2: all the tests uh and that's interesting so so on that on like to follow up with that uh, within the Cato context um did you kind of learn what libertarianism is on the job and and yes. and the the, yeah, I, the second question is no i just is what do you I mean, what do you I, think well, libertarianism is now? And, and I don't mean that in terms of political movements. I mean like how, when you – with all the colleagues at Cato and everyone says, you know, these are my philosophical commitments. Well, here's the here's things. what I
0: brought. I didn't – what I learned early on from economics was not meso- – was to separate efficiency from distributional issues. That, that's just – I mean and, and even at Cato people don't. I just
2: – Expand. The, you're you're going to have to explain that a little bit more. Okay.
0: Uh so so efficiency is about what economists call getting prices right. Price should equal marginal cost. All of those things from Econ 101. Turns out in regulation, right? Remember I started studying environmental and energy regulation. So the question is why don't what what is it about energy and environmental markets that does or doesn't work using that word in parentheses? Well turns out work to an economist, is two parts. One is, is there, is there an efficiency claim going on? And that involves something called market failure, right? That the efficiency characteristics of markets optimally utilizing resources and maximizing output relative to inputs, that's what economists mean by efficiency. Everything else, i.e. most of politics, maybe all of politics, maybe all of cultural fussing isn't about efficiency at all. And thus, economics actually has nothing to say. It's about the distribution of income and wealth. I wish the money that other people had were taken from them and given to others, because I think that would be the right thing to do. Now, economists can talk about this tax is more efficient than that. This way of redistribution has more or less efficiency consequences. But the ultimate question of, is the distribution of income and wealth, is it something that something called the state or anybody ought to have the right to do something about, is completely outside of economics. It's a philosophical question. And uh, the, so that, that's that distinction, separate, when someone says something is a policy problem, I always ask them first to talk out loud so I can figure out whether they're, they're, when they say something's a problem, whether they are saying there's a distributional issue out there in the public or in their own minds that they would like majority rule to change. Or are they really saying price doesn't equal marginal cost and we could make, we could get it, we could regulate that market or we could tax it or subsidize it to get prices closer to marginal cost? Those are, I can give an example, a current one, if you want to drift on. um, Electricity pricing in California. Okay, it's kind of, right? Like, oh boy, Aaron's going, yeah, I really want to talk about this. But it's made the papers in an interesting way because of economists at Berkeley. Okay, so first, most people don't realize that most of the costs for producing electricity are fixed. It's the wires. It's not generation, right? It's not the use of fuel to produce electricity. It's all the fixed costs. Okay, so when fixed costs are high and marginal costs are low, how should we price the product? And the answer, if you read regulation carefully, right, my journal, three-part tariff, right? A price for use, which is based on the cost of generation, a big fixed charge per month to cover all the things that are just there that are don't vary with use. And then three, a peak demand charge, which is the highest use every year by everybody at the same time, determines a lot of the fixed costs, right? And so okay, that, wait, wait. So I just the- want
2: to translate for our, our nonic. <laughs> so the fixed cost is that the biggest thing at the beginning is laying down the lines, laying down, doing the... Creating the power Correct. plant, that that's let's say you know five billion dollars of the the cost of this, and then the actual burning of whether it's nuclear or anything it, that it, to generate the power that's the variable cost, and that is not as much a component of the price of electricity as the wires and the maintaining the wires. I know from an old Free Thoughts episode actually cutting down trees around electrical wires is like a fairly large well the north
0: the northeast blackout yeah, so it, it was because they didn't and, keep the transmission path free of trees and then
2: when consumption spikes happen you want to price that accordingly and make people vary their consumption uh, but people think that the biggest component of electricity cost is the generation of the electricity not but it's not but it's not
0: and this comes up in California because prices are 25 to 35 cents a kilowatt hour. But the system marginal cost, including carbon pricing and pollution, right? estimates by Berkeley of what the pollution tax ought to be, are something around 7 cents a kilowatt hour. So think, right? So you're paying, you should pay, instead of $10 a month fixed, the California proposal is to charge $80 a month right and this is pissing off the 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 net solar well the rooftop solar people right the rooftop solar is attractive in california because of what's called net metering right so if you're out right think of it if you produce enough on your house to you to satisfy all your use in a month your electric charge under the old rules in california was zero you were paying nothing to fix costs Instead of paying 80 a month, right, the approximate probable cost, you're paying zero. And given 35 cent kilowatt hour charge to the the big users inland California, right, above or where the San Francisco winds don't blow when it really gets hot inland, those affluent California solar installers were paying zero dollars a month. And then the fixed costs of the system were being shoved onto other folks, right? So the California Energy Lab at Berkeley, right, that Severin Bornstein and his folks proposed to raise fixed costs and lower marginal cost. Well, then they said, what about low-income people? So then they came up with an income-related fixed monthly charge. Well, the, everyone's gotten wind of this, and there's hell to pay. And the Post has picked, right, the National Paper, the Post and the Times are starting to Conservative columnists are saying this is totally inappropriate. In fact, there's a Cato blog the other day by someone uh, saying this is outrageous. We can't have income. Well, I mean, you could. I mean, there's nothing. Imp- you got fixed costs, all right. So everyone can pay eighty or ninety a month, or the low-income folks can pay twenty-five, and the high-income folks can pay a hundred and thirty. Okay, I mean, there's nothing. I mean, it's. So I don't know if libertarians have a, if we ought to have a position on whether that is bad or not, but there's a lot of fixed costs. You got to charge it somehow. The, but the, for economic efficiency, you need to get that price equal to what the system marginal cost is so that everyone then has the right incentive to use or not use or conserve or not conserve. So you get these idiotic arguments about from conservationists saying, well, the thirty-five cent kilowatt-hour charge now it really has great incentives to conserve. True, but it's actually too much of an incentive. It's an inappropriate incentive to conserve if the car, a reasonable carbon tax and a pollution charge, plus the marginal cost of production are somewhere like seven or eight cents, right? It, you don't just charge people for the fun of it. At least in my world, anyway. That's a so that's a complicated current example of how distributional and efficiency issues aren't well understood and aren't separated. And as all, all the chattering classes are getting it wrong, and the Berkeley people are getting pummeled for, I, I told Jeff Meyer and our colleague at Cato, I said, look, the economists never have influence. And look, Severance Energy Center at Berkeley got the legislature and the California Regulatory Commission to actually change the way they price electricity based on his papers, and he's just catching hell for it. <laughs> so, no good turn, uh, or whatever the right phrase is. It's so anyway. That's that's an example of Peter's mind thinking out loud. I don't, and the listeners are now saying, "Oh my God, that's so sad." <laughs>
1: One way of stating, I think, what you, the the takeaway from much of what you just said is that politics is not about policy. No. Or and not largely not about policy. And not about and, efficiency. And this is something I mean all of us either do or have worked in the <laughs> policy arena. Um I am the one who has the most just gotten the hell out of of public policy. And part of that was a recognition, and this got a lot worse in D.C. in the Trump years, that policy just didn't really matter anymore. People, the decision makers simply weren't interested in it. The voters had never really been interested in it. Nobody cared. You were just kind of you're, – you're making ammunition to reinforce decision makers' priors. They just kind of come to you and well, say, they like, would, I already believe this. I want you to tell me I'm right. They would, or I want you to give me things that say my opponents are correct. wrong. Correct.
0: They would listen to you when you did this, even if you used jargon they didn't understand. They did not actually care about the problem intellectually. There, there, there are exceptions. But, but on average, um, getting price equal marginal cost is not how you win elections, right? Probably. Yeah. Uh, unless you're in a special kind of district with nerdy voters, uh, et cetera, et
1: cetera. And I think this manifests in, so you have the, say this is kind of distributional issues and distribution matters to people in the sense that people are motivated by like, I want more stuff or I want the people I don't like to have less stuff. Correct. Correct. Yep. uh, But there's also, you know, that's not the whole of the non-policy concerns. There are more value based i want i want the state to represent to like represent the values that i like and not the values of the people i don't like or enforce those yes. values certainly we're seeing so that
0: on. recently and that's to a person of my background and training it's a head scratcher cuz I, I i nothing in my training or being or intellect allows me to offer anything to help adjudicate those kinds of conflicts. And other than that, it it turns by necessity, because if you have value fights, then politics has to be zero sum. And it's a fight to the death. Uh, and that we don't, I mean, it's medieval in nature. And, and we used to kill people over these things. And now, thank goodness, we don't do that. But my goodness, are people riled up over uh, I I want to live my life my way and I don't want to have to collectively consume other people's vision of the good life and I want textbooks and this. Uh, I want the public sphere to reflect my way of thinking about these zero-sum things rather than anyone else's because I hate them or don't like them or think, and to be fair to these folks, I disagree with their values and think it's wrong for those values to be in the public sphere. Um, And wow, nothing in my... I mean, so um, I was taught... I mean, could be... My intellectual training is that uh, elected officials know all this in their bones and hate these kinds of issues. So I was taught, intellectually at least, that they politicians do not want to be this way and know they can't win elections this way continuously. And so I'm so I literally um, am puzzled and has, I don't have a good positive theory of why so many folks are trying this now to win elections. Cause it, it seems to me, well, I, I'm just repeating everything in, intellectually and political science in the 70s and 80s was. Ah, uh, ye, no, you don't. This is not. That's not how how you win re-election. Because for every voter you might gain, there's somebody you lose. And you want you want some. You want to, you want to cut ribbons. You want to build dams, right? You want. I mean, I was pork bear. You want stuff that even though it's idiotic from an economic point of view, you want stuff to give out that makes everyone happy. And happiness is getting someone else to pay for your stuff, and that's what Congress used to be about. <laughs> and so I'm old. I mean, I, I'm old-fashioned in that I think Biden is a throwback, but he's he, intellectually I get it, which is he may not stand for anything, but that's really good. Thank goodness he doesn't, because he's going to lower the temperature in the room meanwhile he's going to borrow like crazy and give away the store, but we 're not going to kill each other
1: yeah, I mean, to give a hypothesis i guess to to what's happened, I think it's a combination of two things, and unfortunately, they are fairly intractable things. Um, the first is the nationalization of politics mm. that that most engaged voters now get their news from national sources versus local sources. And so that bridge that got built in your district is not as big of news to them as the drag queen story hour 2,000 miles away that their national talking heads are yammering on and on about. And the growing power of the presidency makes that worse. Cable news makes that worse. The, The internet is like a public sphere makes that worse because your attention is all national. And if you want to stir people up, it has to be what sometimes gets referred to in the media as we need a national conversation about this. And I think part of this argument is like, no, we need far fewer exactly. national no, conversations and more local the ones. The more
0: national conversations we have, the more we'll realize we're really different. I mean, how why American. don't we get an international
2: conversation? You know, I mean like <laughs> yes. keep keep going out.
1: But part two, I think, just briefly is the increasing gerrymandering of of districts means that the election that matters is not the election between the Democrat and the Republican. It is the primaries. It's who's going to get the Republican nomination or who's going to get the Democratic nomination, because once that happens, it's a foregone conclusion. And primaries tend to attract the most engaged yes, and kind yeah. of the most extreme voters. And so they're their influence is wildly outsized compared. And I don't, and both of those seem like it's, it is it is hard to get everybody back to looking at just local news and not caring about the national scene. And it's awfully hard to kind of ungerrymander because nobody has an incentive to de escalate in that.
0: I'll push back only a little in that in the intern lecture I give, I'm always looking for new papers. And I found some interesting ones for the spring lecture in which. I'm a median voter guy. I'm a kind of
2: you know the extremes are, again the sh- extremes will be clarified. Just the median voter theory uh, is that the person right in the middle who could go either way is the one who decides the election. Essentially, correct.
0: In my in my lecture, it's Susan Collins or Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema, right? The kind of it, it's neither the Freedom Caucus nor Bernie Sanders, and so the AOC crowd and the Freedom Caucus. They yell and scream a lot, but they're they're not they they're not gonna matter well, they sort of i mean so i students push me right because of McCarthy's speakership and this and that, but there's a good Stanford paper that argues that shows that uh in the twenty twenty two midterms uh the election denialists on the Republican side did worse than Republicans who didn't deny all right so facing. In the primaries, you're correct, but once you go to the general election, then they go, "Oh my goodness, this is crazy and so uh same thing on the progressive side right the a o c s of the world uh haven't done that well outside of the districts one would suspect they would you know representing the south bronx is 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 uh different and and uh so um again, this part i mean I'm not. I guess we're not going to cite papers and all that, and I didn't really prepare on that front. But they're, they're, uh, I, and then on abortion. I mean, we've we've. What was fascinating to me is the, uh, the when the voters seem to get a chance in referenda, even in very very red states, they have pushed back. Um, like my colleague Jerry Rosenberg, his dissertation, that he wrote way back when, that said that the Supreme Court getting ahead of the public is the worst thing that can happen for the court. And you actually want the legislature to wrestle with stuff. And even though progressives were frightened to death of legislatures wrestling with abortion, they thought it would be a nightmare. It hasn't been in the way they thought. Um, and I, I, so I push back just a bit on that.
2: All right. So I have a related question. I mean, it's not totally related to Aaron's question, but there's going to be a word in this that you hate, Peter, uh, <laughs> but I want you to try and wrestle with it. And you can resist. That's fine. Um, why, and this is the word you'll hate, philosophically, do you believe in free markets? Uh, did you come to believe in free markets? Uh, you kind of mentioned that you work into market theory early on in your career, but why? And again, if you could say something that's philosophical about that. Do you believe in free markets?
0: I learned from Cato. I mean, I uh, remember my formative intellectual years were about wow, energy, oil price regulation, right? Energy regulation in the '70s, oil price controls—that was just stupid. Okay, so and it was an attempt to tax and transfer. It was a very bad. I mean. We went to a crude oil windfall profits tax eventually, which never went into effect for various reasons, but price controls really, they weren't into price controls. They were into redistributing natural resource rents away from producers towards consumers. Same thing we're facing now actually in energy, right? But so philosophically, I actually learned, I said markets work pretty well and people, I learned to value autonomy individual autonomy. I mean, people can relate to the notion of you get to go into the supermarket and buy what you want as long as you pay for it. And you can pollute as long as you want, as long as you pay for it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The important thing is you get to do what you want as long as um, the, the benefits and costs of said thing are confined as best we can tell to you. And the minute you have consequences for others, We then need to have a conversation about whether it's worth it or not for the state to do something. And on average, the answer is no. In extreme cases, the answer is yes. And that's sort of, um, but the notion of autonomy as a value, I certainly probably felt it in my bones just growing up in northern New York, where people are stubborn and farmers get to do what they want. And particularly, um, but then, philosophy and the associated intellectual apparatus associated with that uh, didn't come about till I was at Cato. And I learned from you guys, from my colleagues about things I hadn't thought about in a way I hadn't thought about it. And then so even guns. I mean you know I'm you you Trevor's for shooting AK forty sevens and I'm shooting. Hey frightened hey to death hey hey don't, don't I I'm just <laughs> okay. trying to get you to shoot.
2: Uh, right, and you right. don't want to come shooting us.
0: And I understand that our advocacy for gun rights, um, if we could get a over and the Constitution as a commitment device, I'm actually into that from a game theory economics perspective, uh, because we all would try to raid everybody all the time if we didn't have commitment devices, and the Constitution is a attempt at a commitment device.
1: And I would just note real quick on the learning from the. One of my favorite PVD moments was when you wandered into my office and just said, "So, can you tell me what this Kant guy thought?" <laughs> well, and remember I well, had to It's that was sad, a big question, yeah. Peter. <laughs>
0: It's, this is why uh, the word Samples philosophical of, or, I was very afraid yeah, of yeah, using yeah. it, yeah. But I well, think remember, you've gotten better over the my, years. My my humanities requirement at MIT was satisfied with economics, right? That tells, you, that, that tells you a lot. So all the things you take for granted, all the liberal arts education that is the basis for everyone at Cato except me, um, I needed to pick up those things as a of uh, middle-aged and beyond middle-aged adult, uh, from my colleagues like you and John Samples, who would come into my office and shake your respective heads and say, "You just don't know this stuff, dude." No, no, no,
2: okay. So I, I have a so, question. I mean, I we kind of cut you off, but we can get back to that. But as I, I mentioned, Aaron, I think uh, way before, just in text, before we were recording this. Um, what do you think a right is? Uh, because many economists, and well, I'm not, right, I mean, is, it, is it just a, right. a bargaining position that are you? Just... It's
0: something to be traded.
2: Uh, yeah. So, but is it <laughs> yeah. when you yeah. say that's a human right? Uh, do, yeah, do you, I don't do know. You, what... Are they just high cost preferences?
0: It's it's something you think the price. It, it's like saying something has close to or ought to have an infinite price, uh, and to an economist, that's oh, nothing should well. Then there's merit, right. Can I sell my right to live in return for a high amount of money? And yeah, in class maybe, but in the real world, no. That doesn't sound like a good thing. But the right to die, right? Auto- back to autonomy. I'm a. I'm getting older, and I don't. I don't want to end up not being able to have martinis and in independence. And they have rules in nursing homes. They don't let you do that. So am I going to be forced out, you know, living my days, having someone put a spoon in my mouth? Or do I get to choose, nah, this I can't do that. I need to go. And oof, many people, many, many people don't like that conversation or discussion, but it's autonomy. And, and so Cato will defend my right to be, to have that choice and and uh, the Catholic Church will not. And but I respect their I mean, their views are philosophically grounded and thus the our two views, how do you reconcile them in the real world? And the answer is you can't. And so we have zero sum fights and then the good news is we have states. We haven't talked about federal, right, we get to we get to move to places that sort of, you know, so Vermont and Maryland. Maryland's now a right to die state. So I, my brother lives in Vermont. I thought I was going to have to go up to his house to put the kibosh on me someday. And then looks like
1: I'm going to now you're just depressing us home. Peter. <laughs> it's, like, it's
2: like, no, no. I mean, but well, you are just, you are correct. Great-aunt. It's a way of thinking about it. Yeah, I agree.
0: My aunt just died. She was ninety six, and she was rung up by the nursing home people for having beer. And her doctor gave her a prescription for boxed wine. For God's sakes, because she was getting in trouble, and then a an administrator come in and said, "No, we're confiscating everything." And it's like, "Oh, come on," you know. It's just
2: I, wait. Okay, did did someone no. go? I, this is like a weird aside, but did someone go to like like a CVS and give a prescription to? by no, no, box, no, box real... wine. I mean like like who do you give a prescription no, box wine? No. No, it
0: was just in a nurse in a nursing facility. This was a standing health order written by her physician oh, okay, that okay. she could have Chardonnay. Okay? And then an administrator said no effing way. Not on my watch. And one reason is the cousin the, the, the my aunt wasn't married and so there were 37 nieces and nephews and second cousins once removed and all that and One of them brought a cooler once with beer to be stuffed under Clara's nursing home bed. And then it leaked and we forgot about it and then it got found out. And so we we create, you know, just like the dorm party that went awry, things, things. (laughs) So, but in your own home, there's no administrator that's going to do that. So anyway, it's important.
2: So this has been a wide-ranging conversation, obviously. Uh, Yes. (laughs) um, In terms of the way you approach a problem, um, when you're asked uh, about, you know, hey, Peter, what do you think about, you know, people at Cato ask you about just about anything, too. And you'll send me papers about, you know, something to do with gun rights or something. Uh, Is there a way that you think about how to look at at the good and bad papers, the good and bad ways of thinking about things when you when you encounter a problem. That...
0: I because of I mean well, We should have a discussion about law versus other things, which is. And I'm not trying to be negative here, but law lawyers tend to be into procedure as solutions to stuff. And I get a lot of papers from lawyers that say, "Here's this tricky little." Thing I'm going to enact to make Congress have fewer rules, right? Because I study, regu- so my journal regulation. So the question is whether what's more useful, a, a, a Congressional Review Act, right, as, as a solution to more, reg- too much regulation, or more articles by economists saying this doesn't make sense. In other words, is is the history of law such that, and here's my view, that Clever people arbitrage around anything, so the the recent debt ceiling and the budget control acts that have occurred over time. Is there any evidence they've really constrained Congress's behavior? Have, have, can we procedure people so that they lose? Well, they don't. Well, they don't want to lose. They'll figure out a way to try to win. So I'm, I tend to be suspicious of solutions to policy problems that involve strictly procedure as opposed to trying to change people's preferences and or understandings of things from a substantive point of view. So so, so if I were to criticize legal solutions, they emphasize procedure, and then to my mind at least, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, which is the history of procedural solutions is that clever opponents to the outcomes procedure their way out of the procedural solutions. And and thus, it's a never-ending full employment act for lawyers. It's not really a solution.
2: I would agree. But the the lawyers tend to either – some of them realize that a given law is just a complete boondoggle for people fighting over Mm -hmm. the meaning of the law. And some of them think, as you said earlier in this podcast, that the law that says – X happens means X happens, and you know that that's a thing that I've always thought, and you you taught me over the years, you know, in a very that 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 is not the case. A law that says X happens, the Clean Water Act does not mean the water will be cleaned, <laughs> like the Gun Control Act does not mean guns will be controlled. And you know what I've learned from you is that that approach to saying, you know, what what actually ends up happening, how is it enforced? And that that's where we should be talking about this. But as you pointed out, no one really wants to hear about that. They they don't want to hear about the nitty gritty. They want to hear about the signaling and the yeah. and the virtues and and I, I always loved how, you know, you've you've said for years that trying to get you to go on a, you know, Fox News broadcast uh to talk about something for three minutes is not your favorite thing to do uh because in three minutes no one can talk about anything that matters or is important really uh and you know people at like cato do a lot of that and so trying to actually have conversations like this is is what we should be trying to do but you know are we going to influence tick, tick. are we going to influence voters with the freedom podcast uh not in any significant way, and so we don't matter. Uh, and well, that, and we I, accept guess, that. I
0: don't know. I guess, I, I guess um, we've talked to uh, all the students I've had over the years. Some of them can stay in touch with me, and they, they say I'm, you know, one of my favorite was he's the director of budgets or director of chief economics. I forget his title, but he works for BART in San Francisco. And he said... I'm in there trying and and I remember your class I remember what you taught me and it's stuck with me and it helps me you know I'm different than other people in the room and that means they they get to hear what I have to say and then that matters a bit at the margin and so that's all we I mean that's that's and Bernie Sanders is trying to do the same thing I mean it it's we have to it's if you I mean, I think, I don't know. I mean, these for me, I think there are certain things that we don't talk about a lot because when confronted with uh, things, it's not clear our views, you know, offer the answer. And so I, as you know, I'm always, I'm most uncomfortable about the market distribution of income and what to do about poverty. And uh, I know enough about history to know that ever since the, Uh, peasants lost their rights in the enclosure movement there are people in markets in urban areas who have always who have done terribly for 500 years and it's over and over and over again and yes markets are good but for some people things don't work out and then what should we do about that and we say charity and then well how do we you know we we I think we haven't fleshed out a robust charity state or charity thing and and how a Salvation Army that was you know blown up or was bigger than it is now somehow would would do the job. And maybe for mental illness, we just I don't know what to, I mean, if remember, we autonomy and I mean if individuals are incapable of deciding, in the way that i think we agreed deciding means our were was the old institutionalized state hospital system and it was horrible but we are now on the other end of the continuum in which we do not know what to do with people living their lives out in their schizophrenic and they aren't housed and they live on the street what do we what do we do about that
2: anyway i don't know thank you for joining us on freedom this is a listener supported show if you'd like to get access to episode transcripts bonus content extended conversations and our discord community go to freedom.audio slash join